nearing the end of our Lent season, we're going to continue in our series, Hearing from the Cross, um, examining Jesus' final words uh, in the Gospels. And today uh, we have that sixth word from, from the Gospel of John in chapter 19, but we'll also read, or Matt will read, uh, you can come forward, Matt, um, a little bit about the, uh, the, the processional narrative as Jesus enters uh, into Jerusalem. So Matt will read from John 12 and John 19. All right, a reading from the Gospel of John. When the great crowd of the Jews learned that he was there, they came not only on account of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest planned to put Lazarus also to death, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, a great crowd who had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young ass and sat upon it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on an ass's colt. His disciples did not understand this at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they had remembered that this had been written, written of him <coughs> and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. The Pharisees then said to one another, you see that you can do nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And moving to chapter 19. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A bowl full of vinegar stood there, so they put up a sponge full of vinegar on hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem is, in my mind, one of the most iconic Bible scenes, right? We, for some of you that have grown up in church, you can picture this on the felt board, right? Like little felt palms. It's captured the imaginations of writers and artists throughout the ages. And I think part of it is because there's just so much data. Whenever you have a crowd like that, there's, there's so many expectations and emotions present, a whole spectrum. Some probably all in on Jesus, right? On what he's doing, uh, the, the, they're buying what he's selling. Some might just be overhearing it, gravitating towards a scene, sidling up to the action. And some, it seems, the ones that knew Jesus best don't really understand what's going on at all. I, I imagine with this scene you have, you have a lot of, um, you have a crowd that's been following Jesus for a while. Uh, he, he, some of the things he's saying are sparking um, some of their hopes. And so as he nears the city where everything is happening, they, they, they kind of um, generate the scene with all this symbolism. They, they wave palms because that's what happens when the king comes home. 
They shout Hosanna. And that's, Hosanna is salvation language. It means save us. And when you say Hosanna in the highest, that means really save us. <laughs> this is the type of stuff that's not reserved for a run-of-the-mill savior, but for, for God becoming king in, in the city, in God's city. Uh, I was looking this week at a lot of, uh, a lot of artwork, and, and um, it, it's, really, it's really amazing to me how dense some of these, some of these images are um, and, and how the little spins each artist kind of puts on the scene and, and, and the, way, the choices they, they make um, to portray what they're trying to say. Like for instance, you can't see it very well. This is from Rublev. Um, who did the Trinity icon that is iconic. And, uh, and, and Rublev's thing, that you, you have so much, it's subtle, but so much movement. If you could see it better, you could see on the, on the left, there's mountains behind Jesus and his followers. And on the right, there's the religious elite in the city. And in the middle is Jesus on this, on this donkey, and, and the, just like the tension for this clash that's going to happen is, is pretty high. Um, it, and below you, there's a size difference where you see um, the people putting palms and worshiping are, are so much smaller than this big Christ. And, and this one I, I really love is, is um, from a German expressionist in, in the early 1900s. He actually died in World War I. And there's so much color and vibrance and, and kind of it's charged even as the, the heart of the horse kind of radiates and everyone is, is gravitating towards the center. It's got a lot of, a lot of kind of potential energy. And, and then this one is by another German uh, born later who's still alive and there's, there's kind of like a violence and a, um, there's like craziness. Like you see these guys with halos over here and one guy like has another in a headlock, uh, and meanwhile Jesus has has a peace sign, you know, uh, kind of emanating this peace. And then uh, this is uh, by a living artist named John August Swanson, and you can see like this, is, you almost can't even compute everything that's going on. And this is huge. This this is at Notre Dame um, uh, right now, and it's so big. But if you see the detail, um, you, you have Jesus kind of. You know, kind of steely, and then uh, you actually have like these people wielding spheres. This is revolution uh, afoot. And and Swanson, when he talked when he talked about it, we, we had the benefit of knowing what he was thinking when he was painting. And he said, "I wanted to convey my feelings from being in marches for peace and justice. This scene has been repeated countless times in the lives of heroic and selfless leaders who have fought for love, peace, and social justice." relived in the lives of Martin Luther King and Gandhi, Oscar Romero, and Cesar Chavez. And, and then finally, this, this is from a um, Chinese-American artist, or a Chinese artist who lives in America named Hei Qi. Um, and, and you just have this, uh, you know, peaceful, steely resolve, Jesus setting his face towards the city. But of all those great images, the one that, that, keeps, that I keep coming back to that, that kind of jumpstarts my imagination is, is of a, a fine piece of cinema. Um, I'm thinking of 
of Robin Hood. <laughs> and when I, when I say Robin Hood, I, I mean Robin Hood. I don't mean the beefed up like Russell Crowe Robin Hood or like a Robin Hood in Man in Tights or not even Kevin Costner who with his brilliant British accent um, is a near ultimate Robin Hood. When I say Robin Hood, I mean Robin Hood and when I mean Robin Hood, I mean the 1973 Disney animated classic <laughs> Robin Hood with you know, Roger Miller as Chanticleer singing. This, this is how I knew that Jeff Crawford and I would become very close friends is when I attended, I didn't know him very well, I attended his 30th birthday party and uh, some of you can know James Wallace, he'll be playing on Good Friday and James Wallace like completely si silenced the crowd with this like heart rending uh, rendition of Not in Nottingham. You know, like, it was so sad. I cried at Open Eye Cafe. Yeah. But I think of Robin Hood because I think of the, that pent up like anticipation for Richard the Lionhearted to return and to snatch the crown off of that phony king of England, that sniveling PJ. <laughs> that that in the midst of all this oppression, that a swift and kind of joyful menace almost could outwit and overthrow a corrupt occupying regime that was holding people down, that was unfairly taxing and stealing birthday money. That despite all appearances, and in fact through kind of ironic and risky means, that Nottingham's salvation, her hope, the cure for her sorrow would, would be made right, would march into the city. Jesus enters into Jerusalem amid similar expectations. Following his raising Lazarus from the dead, his own anointing, it's really a preparation for his burial by Mary's life savings and her hair and tears, he parades into the city where everything happens. It seems the ones least aware of what's going on and the gravity of, of that are the ones closest to him. This last week during morning prayer, um, it was the, the celebration of the Annunciation. So it's nine months. You can just mark it on the calendar. Nine months until Christmas, which means God came to Mary and said, Mary, you're going to have a baby. And that's a surprise to you and everyone. As we read that story, it, it, it hit me, you know, that our kids have been memorizing the scripture verse with man, th things are impossible with God, all things are possible, and, and we hold that story of the virgin birth as an impossibility made possible. But it hit me that one of the most surprising things to me in that whole story is that when, when God comes to Mary through the angel and says, you're going to have a child, Mary says, okay, here I am. Yes. That Mary was tuned in to what God was doing while God was doing it. I, I don't possess this ability. It's so mysterious to me that she had that faith and that her faith created the space for God to create in her Jesus, the faithful one, the one by whom we're saved through faith. 
here in, in the, the entry into Jerusalem, not even Jesus' closest friends, his apprentices, those who he spent all his waking hours with for three years, this is like the Master's of Divinity degree, three years with Jesus, right? Not even they get it. It says, at first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. They could have learned quite a bit about faith from a young Mary. Perhaps they would have understood the pox on the phony king of England that was coming into those city gates. Perhaps they would have understood this occupying Rome with its taxation and its oppressive measures, the ways that it creates peace. Pax Romana, peace where there is no peace. Perhaps they would have understood that and responded by, by eliciting these cries of Hosanna and joining these, these cries of the downtrodden. So then we f- flash forward. We flash forward seven chapters in, in a week to our passage in, in John 19, Jesus' words from the cross. And we find that king that they're hailing at the gates. We find him on the skull's hill crucified. Those cries of adulation and blessing. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Those cries have turned to crucify. Crucify. And from the religious elite, we have no king but Caesar. Jesus' parade has turned into a lynch mob. And then slowly, one by one, he's deserted, leaving him hung out to dry. And it's then before Jesus dies that he says it. And John reports this pretty even-handedly, right? A few weeks ago we had where Jesus screamed, this blood-curdling scream, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But here John just reports, he said, it is finished. Tetelestai are the Greek words. Tetelestai, that simple, perfect, passive word, something that happened in the past with ongoing force. Tetelestai, it is finished. Jesus' words, not I'm done for, not it's all over, but rather it's completed. It's made perfect, it's achieved, it's, it, it's gone on to its telos. In Jesus' seemingly last or penultimate moment of defeat, he claims victory. Mission accomplished is what he's saying. He reinforces the crowd's initial inclination to hail him as their salvation, Hosanna. But no one's around to see it. He's lost their attention. They've moved on to the next spectacle. They've just assumed that he failed. Meanwhile, he's claiming victory from the cross. I sympathize with the crowds. I sympathize with the disciples and their masters of divinity degrees. Far too often, I can't or don't or won't 
see God working around me. I can't or don't or won't recognize what I think of, what I think I'm seeing as God forsakenness or sorrow or defeat as a moment of profound nearness to God. Profound nearness to the one who went through any and everything I could go through and worse in my place and for my sake. I'm unwilling or unable to see opportunity to put faith into action when my eyes don't see it happening. I'm unwilling or unable to hear Jesus' tetelestai over me as the word that trumps all of my fears. I love the song that Justin and Nell sang that blows all fear away. All of those idols that vie for my attention and my affection, all the sorrows and insecurities, all my hopes and longings. Because when Jesus says it is finished, he means it. He means that it's all been accomplished in that tricky, that God kind of already but not yet way, that, that frustrating way that God works. <laughs> that sort of consummation that we have to live inside of and inhabit and embody, that we're assured even while God includes us in the outcome. And he tells us that several things are finished. We know that in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the revelation of God has been finished, completed, fulfilled. Earlier in John, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and who is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. We've seen God. And he looks nothing other, he looks like nothing other than Jesus on the cross. Taking all of the abuse and punishment of our sin from our sin. We know that God the giver looks like God the forgiver who goes to extravagant lengths, life and death extremes to forgive us. We know that in Jesus' birth and his life and his death and his resurrection, the mission of the Messiah has been finished. It's been completed, fulfilled. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That God loved the world with such quantity, so much, with such quality in just so a way. And we might be rescued by His Son, the Messiah. We know that in Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection, the reconciliation of the world has been finished, completed, fulfilled. This scripture from John 12 says, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. All people. The insider-outsider wall has been leveled. The old saying, the ground in front of the cross is level. When Jesus has been lifted up in his death on the cross and in his resurrection, our salvation has been completed. No identity that we could form for ourselves could take the place of the identity as God's children that Jesus has forged for us. 
when we respond in faith, it's because we have a faithful one to respond to who's drawn us to him by his spirit. I love, there's this old story, and I think it's an actual real story, not just like legend, but um, the theologian Karl Barth, he, he had just finished a string of long, pretty dense lectures, and, and a student raises his hand to ask him a question, and he says, Dr. Bart, when were you saved? <laughs> and he paused and he replied and he said, hmm, when was I saved? Oh yes, that's easy. It was 2,000 years ago on the cross. In the same way, Jesus offers the definitive statement about how God feels about humanity. While we were still sinners, God loved us. While we were enemies, he made us friends. And we know that in Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection, the route of the devil has been finished, completed, fulfilled. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, says John 12, 31. Perhaps this is the most difficult thing to believe. Maybe there's an accent on the not yet, that already not yet equation. We look around and sin and its evil accuser seems to be running rampant. People and institutions stumble over themselves to fill the void of the last sinful, oppressive person to fall. The poor suffer. War and strife abound. Children are abused, widows, sweatshop workers and farmers, persons with disabilities, modern-day sex slaves. They're all looking for a change of power. Evil seems to be alive and well. Our earth groans for redemption. But Jesus' Tetelestai tells a different story. His it is finished tells a different tale. It's a story where those power brokers and that liar who keeps whispering in their ears aren't actually in power because they're desperately trying to win a battle that's already been lost. They're like the writhing tail of a snake that's had its head cut off. Death has completely already lost its sting and redemption and renewal is afoot. Perhaps the devil's most frantic work happens in the wake of sure and imminent defeat. What if we lived this Tetelestai life? That it was already finished, already completed for us in our place on our behalf. What if we understood that the cross creates a space for this kind of it-is-finished life? It's a life of peace and assurance. We talked about with our home group last week, we talked about Sabbath and, and, and what Sabbath does for your lifestyle. That if, if you observe Sabbath, not, not just that you go through the paces and, and do the steps to, to take a day off or whatever, um, but if you're living a Sabbath lifestyle, it's a, it's a lifestyle of profound assurance that God, 
that God is going to get done what needs to get done, that God is going to provide and already indeed has provided for you. That we don't need to do or be or work more than God does and is and works. On the seventh day, God rested. That somehow a life of peace, of shalom, is possible because God makes it possible. That there's abundance, there's more than enough. That we can live lives of repentance and transparency because there's nothing left to hide from God or each other. That Jesus was stripped bare so that we don't even have to fear being stripped bare of all that sin that we use to cover ourselves up. That it's a telestyle life is a life um, in tune with God, in step with God, asking the questions of what Jesus would do if Jesus was living the life that I've been given. That we can live with assurance of the outcome, not fretting, not grabbing, not as... Philippians 2 says, exploiting um, our position, our, the things we've been given. Uh, I ask you this morning to, to come to the cross, to come to God, to, to, to bask, to revel in the fact that Jesus proclaims, doesn't ask, ask a question, but proclaims to tell us that it is finished. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you for completing your rescue plan for humanity, your recovery uh, to bring us back to you. Um, We've been gone for a long time. We thank you that your son loved us so much to give his own life and that you loved us so much to give your son. Father, give us assurance as we live our daily lives. Help us not be motivated by fear and lack. Take away our frenzy, our busyness, our distraction. Take away the ways that we sin against you by sinning against others and treating them poorly because we don't really believe that it's been finished. Work that in our salvation, minute by minute, daily, day by day. Feed us at this table um, with Christ's body and his blood to make that a reality as we walk out of here as Christ's body broken for this world. Father, be near to us in these next moments of of confession and conversation. Let us be honest with you, but more so let us um, be still. Know that you're God and listen well. We thank you so much for your love. Amen.